This is a true story of the Phantom Killer in Texarkana, Texas. For those who are not, for those who do not live in Texas or have never heard of Texarkana, it is located approximately 180 miles from Dallas, Texas. And how Texarkana generally got its name is because it's near the area of the Texas, Arkansas, and Louisiana border. So I thought for the first first episode of this podcast, I would talk about a really interesting set of killings that for some that still haven't been solved to this day. So the first attack occurred on a February night in 1946. 24-year-old Jimmy Hollis and his girlfriend, Mary Jane LeRae, 19, had attended a downtown movie, then decided to prolong the evening with a romantic visit to a secluded lane on the edge of town. They had, according to the story, that Mary Jan, or Mary, would later tell authorities have been parked no more than 10 minutes when a man, his face hidden beneath a white hood with eye holes, approached the car, pointing a flashlight and pistol at them. Mary later recalled the assailant telling her boyfriend, I don't want to kill you, fella, so do what I say. He then ordered the both in and both he then ordered both out of the car, angrily demanding that Jimmy remove his trousers. Then with Jimmy clad only in his boxer shorts, the attacker hit him twice in the head, knocking him unconscious. When Mary tearfully, tearfully tried to convince the gunman that they had no money, even pulling a billboard from Jimmy, Jimmy's discarded pants to show him, she too was struck in the head. Bleeding and dazed, Mary's screams echoed through the woods as a man then sexually assaulted her with a barrel of his gun. It was when Jimmy began to ring, regain consciousness that Mary's, ter- Mary's attacker's attention was diverted long enough for Mary to get on her feet and run. The intruder quickly caught up to her and hit her in the head and again, hit her in the head again. I remember looking up at him and saying, go ahead and kill me. Then for reasons she would never understand, the masked man suddenly turned away and disappeared into the darkness. So even though Jimmy was badly injured, he managed to make his way to a main road and flag down a passing car. Mary, meanwhile, had run to a nearby house where she pounded on the on the door until a farmer awoke, let her inside, and telephoned the sheriff. After receiving medical attention, Mary needed stitches to close her wounds. Jimmy was hospitalized for several weeks with two two severe skull fractures. The victims could only describe their attacker as thin and approximately six feet tall. Neither of the two recognized his voice or had seen the face behind the mask. They both, also, they both also described him as either a white man or a light-skinned black man. So, just a month after the first attack happened, on March 24th, a heavy rain was falling that early Sunday morning when a motorist nearing the Texarkana city limits noticed an Oldsmobile sedan parked on a dirt lane near Highway U.S. Highway 67. Thinking that someone was stuck in the muddy ruts the rain had created, he slowed down and drove close enough to see that two people were in the car. It looked as if they might have been asleep. What he soon would learn was that Richard Griffin, 29 years old, who was recently discharged from the Navy, and Polly Ann Moore, a 17-year-old employee at the Red River Arsenal, were dead.
Richard's body lay awkwardly in the front seat, his hands still over his face. The pocket of his the pocket of his trousers was turned inside out, indicating a robbery had taken place. He had been shot twice in the head. Polly Ann's body lay face down in a blanket in the back seat. Her per her open purse beside her, a ring signifying that she had recently graduated from nearby Atlanta, Texas High School, was still on her finger. Noting a pool of blood, the damp, sandy loam twenty feet away, investigators concluded that she had been killed there, but her body had been placed back in the car. Aside from several .32 caliber pistol casings that were located near the murder scene, investigators found little evidence. The rains, which continued throughout the day the bodies were found, had washed away footprints and made it all but impossible to locate any fingerprints on the exterior of the car. It was not until the first murders occurred that people in law enforcement began to put the attack on Mary Jean and Jimmy Hollis and the deaths of Griffin and Moore together. The general reading, reasoning was that Texarkana in the 40s was a great place to live, but it did have its share of violent crimes, such as Saturday night shootings and bar stabbings. So a few weeks later, on Saturday night, April 13, 1946, the band had its regular, made its regular appearance at the local VFW hall, playing its final number just before 1 a.m., normally an adult band member would escort 15-year-old Betty Jo Berger Booger home, but on that night she had been invited to an all-night slumber party in a former classmate named Paul Martin, 16 years old, 16, had agreed to pick her up and drive her across town to the party. First they stopped off at Sp Spring Lake Park, then a popular parking spot among teenagers. The following morning, Paul was found by family taking a shortcut through the park en route to Prescott, Arkansas. Seeing the young man's body lying beside the road, the traveler sped to a nearby house and alerted those living there to phone the authorities. When Sheriff Presley and several deputies arrived, they saw Paul had been shot four times in the neck, face, chest, and shoulder, apparently with a thirty-two caliber pistol. Immediately, a search party was organized to locate Betty Jo Booker. It was shortly before noon when her body was found in a grove of trees a mile away from where Paul had been killed. Fully clothed and wearing an overcoat that was still buttoned, she had been shot in the chest and face. Paul's car was found another mile away, parked near a rail railroad crossing, the key still in the ignition. Betty Jo's saxophone was missing. So bringing, so Betty decided to bring her, Betty decided to bring her saxophone with her at the time, so she would be able to drive it to her par to her parents' home before going going anywhere else with Paul. But on the way home, they decided to park at a popular parking spot among teen teenagers called Spring Lake Park. On the following morning, Paul was found by family taking a shortcut through the park en route to Prescott, Arkansas. Seeing the young man's body lie lying beside the road, the travelers, travelers spread to a nearby house and alerted those living there to phone the authorities. When Sheriff Presley and several deputies arrived, they saw Paul had been shot four times in the neck, face, 
chest, and shoulder, apparently with a thirty-two caliber pistol. Immediately, a search party was organized to locate Betty Jo Booker. It was shortly before noon where her body was found in a grove of trees, a mile away from where Paul had been killed. Fully clothed and wearing an overcoat that was still buttoned, she had been shot in the chest and face. Paul's car was found another mile away, parked near a robo crossing, the key still in the ignition, and Betty Jo's saxophone was still missing. Even before the pro- funerals for the popular teenagers were conducted, a reward fund that would eventually go to, no- to more than $5,000 had been established, and a half-done Texas Rangers, led by the flamboyant Gonzuelas, were in town to join the investigation. In the lobby of downtown Grimm Hotel, the Natalie-dressed ranger regularly met with the growing number of reporters in town to chronicle the investigation. Following it would soon successfully end. His display of confidence was apparently overshadowed only by the colorful, by today's measure, outrageous quotes given to the media. According to the Texas Gazette's article that was written years later, they recalled a radio interviewer asking what advice Gonzalez would, uh, would give to the city's apprehensive citizens. His response was, I tell them to check the locks and bolts on their doors and get a double-barreled shotgun to take care of any intruders who tried to get in. He reported and ended each interview with a vow that he would not leave Texarkana until the murders are solved. Very little was known at the time. The only thing that was known was that people were were aware that the murders of two couples had occurred exactly three weeks apart. The final attack. On the evening of May 3rd, 1946, 36-year-old Miller County farmer Virgil Starks sat in his living room, a heating pad pressed against a aching back, reading his newspaper. His wife, Kath, Katie, already in her nightgown, was in the bedroom listening to the radio when two qu- quick shots interrupted the rural quiet. Fired through the living room, both shots struck the back of Mr. Stark's head. Mrs. Starks entered the living room to find her husband slumped in his chair and ran for the phone. Before she could dial the number of the sheriff's department, two more shots rang out. One bullet ripped through Katie's right cheek, exiting behind her left ear. The second bullet entered through her jaw, dislodging several teeth before the bullet lodged itself under her tongue. Fleeing through the front door, she ran to the safety of a neighbor's house less than a hundred yards away. Even before she had been taken to the hospital for treatment, state, county, and city officers had made the ten-mile trip to the state Stark's farmhouse. Although the details of the crime were far different from the murders of the local youths, the death of Virgil Starks was immediately attributed to the notorious phantom killer. So after the final attack, the town is completely terrified because they were wondering if yet another attack was come before an arrest would be made and calm restored. Residents were soon buying guns and locking the doors, and a curfew was even set in place. Wives of men who worked at evening shifts at Lone Star Arsenal assembled their children and took up nightly residence in the downtown Grimm Hotel. The local Western Union office suspended after-delivery delivery telegrams when shots were fired at an employee as he approached a residence. So, the first victim was unfortunately never the same again. Mary Jean could constantly suffer um, night terrors as she would always she always used, she would always say that she would see hands trying to get her and and a man with a hooded mask. So after the second lover lane's attack, 
after second level laser attack, which resulted in two deaths, she decided to leave and go live with relatives in Oklahoma. So after Mr. Stark's first murder, after the Stark's murder, uh, and for the first time, there actually have been clues that have been left have been left behind. Bloody footprints have been left in the living room where Stark's body have fallen from the chair onto the floor. It appeared that the assailant has even had even stopped to rub a hand through the pool of blood that clicked near Stark's head before leaving through the front door. Bloodhounds brought to the scene from Arkansas State Police Headquarters in Hope, Arkansas, followed the killer's scent to the nearby highway, then lost it half a mile from the house. Crime scene investigators meanwhile located spent 22.22 cartridges and bullet holes in the window near where Starks had died. The shots, they determined, had been fired only a few feet away. Additionally, the killer had apparently dropped a red-handed flashlight while making his retreat. So the really cool, this is a really interesting thing is, a few days later, the Texarkana Gazette, which was eager to help with the investigation, decided would actually publish the first color photo in newspaper history and the photo they they posted was of the red hand of flashlight while there has been no evidence that anyone other mary jean had been sexually assaulted during the crime spree the gazette's headline read sex maniac hunted and murders despite public outcry weary investigators soon found themselves back at square one the only good news was that the killings abruptly ended after the stark's death in 2001, Dr. Gregson, who has interviewed and studied hundreds of murderers during his lengthy career, recently interviewed the facts of the crimes that occurred in his boyhood backyard and offered his thoughts. The first two attacks, he says, were obviously committed by someone with a psychopathic personality. The attacker was not only cold-blooded, but obviously very angry. I suspect a great deal of that anger had to do with reaction he felt from women and very likely hostility towards males who had accomplished more with their lives than he had. And while there was apparently a great deal of sexual abuse in at least one of the cases, there was not. these were not traditional sex crimes. The killer was not in search of the sexual gratification. He was venting an incredible degree of angry. So over the years, there have always been speculating theories about who did this case. Um, there is a theory going. There's a theory that went around that has going gone around um, that the murder of Virgil Starks was not done by the same person because there, but that one was done by either a copycat killing or done by someone with a personal grudge against Starks or his wife. So the person that um, there were tons of confessions and stuff that mo there ones that an 18 year old University of Arkansas student took his own life, leaving a note confessing to the murders. But so a few months after the final attack, there is a may there is a so called major break in the case because. Um, A few months after the final tax, the EPS deputy, Tillman Johnson, remembers he received an urgent call from the police chief in Shreveport, Louisiana, urging that he get there as quickly as possible. An out-of-town patron of one of the city's bars, the deputy was told, had just admitted to the phantom murders. The, view, the man had been talking about the crime throughout a boozy evening, unaware that among his drinking companions was a reporter from the local newspaper. 
Seeing the possibility of the story of a lifetime, the journalist had begun buying the man drinks. Finally, in response to the generosity, the stranger told in detail how he had committed the crimes. The reporter then telephoned the police and the man was soon arrested. Excited about the prospect of seeing the killer who had terrorized his community, Tillman drove immediately to Shreveport and raced to the jail. Behind bars, smiling him, was a man he had known as his childhood. Working of whiskey, the prisoner called out the deputy's name as he approached. Clearly angered, Tillman demanded an explanation. His old friend only shrugged. I was in this bar my money right now, he said. There was this young fellow there that really interested in all this fan killer stuff. So what the hell? I figured if I told him a good story, he would keep buying the drinks. The deputy did not share in the laughter that erupted from inside the cell. Turning to the police chief, Tillman said, Let him sober up and then turn him loose. He's not our man. Who is he? Who the hell is he? The bewildered sheepboard officer asked. Tillman responded quite as he turned to walk away. He's our town drunk. False hope plagued this investigation for weeks. One evening, Tillman recalls, we got this call that there was someone prowling around at the Stark's house. Thinking maybe the killer had his side returned to the scene of the crime, we took off there. What they found upon their arrival was the publicity-loving ranger, Gonzuelas, inside the house posing at the crime scene were a Time magazine photographer. Finally, as weeks passed with no apparent progress in the case, the media began checking out of the Grim Hotel, off to another story's in place. The Texas Rangers left after spending three unsuccessful months working on the case. While local authorities continued to assign manpower to the investigation, the Phantom Killer quickly disappeared from the local headlines. There is one person that is considered the most major suspect of the of this particular serial killings um and i'll get to him right in a second in 1946 tillman johnson the then former deputy along with then rookie arkansas state trooper max tackett most likely arrested the man who had committed the lover lane's murders according to Tilver, tillman johnson max tuckett placed up on the picked up on the fact that every time the phantom struck a car had been stolen then later abandoned in fact, on the night Betty Jo was killed, a car was stolen from a friend of her parents, and a witness had come forward with the name of the man who drove it away. In late June 1946, Max Tack Tackett had staked out a downtown Texarkana parking lot where another stolen car had been abandoned and ultimately arrested a 21-year-old woman recently married to the man he was looking for, a local ex-convict with a lengthy record a burglary, counterfeiting, and car theft. She told us that he was over in Atlanta, Texas, trying to sell another car he'd stolen. So we notified the police there to keep an eye on him, Tillman says. It wasn't long before they contacted us to say he was headed back to Texarkana. When we got him into the car, two men were calls. He looked at me asked if he was going to the electric chair. I laughed and told him we don't, ex we don't execute for people for stealing cars. That's when he said, Hell, I know what you guys want me for. You want me for them, you want me more than for stealing a car. Reasonably certain, the rail thin 29 year old man was alluding to the phantom murders. They took him to the Miller County, Arkansas jail in hopes that he might soon confess to the murders. Night after night, Tillman, Max, and Sheriff Presley took turns grilling the high school dropout without success. 
they soon turned his attention to his wife, who told them a frightening story of how Martin and Booker had been murdered in Spring Lake Park. She and the man in custody had just returned to, Ar had returned to Texarkana from visit to Dallas and had stopped in town to see purchase beer. Then they had driven out to the park to get drunk and rob somebody. She told of watching as the terrified young couple was forced were forced from their car at gunpoint and taken to the nearby woods. Later, she had been and she heard a quick series of gunshots. Sheriff Presley wanted to take her out to the park and see if she could show us where the murders had taken place, and she agreed. She couldn't locate the exact spot, but got pretty close. Once we got her back in the car, the sheriff asked her if her husband had robbed Martin. She acknowledged that she remembered him taking some things out of the boy's pockets and then tossing them away in a nearby ditch. What very few people knew at this time was that a small date book planning, belonging to Martin had been washed in and had been found in a washed out area not too far from his body. The woman also recalled her husband tossing Booker's still missing saxophone from the car as they had been driven back to town. It was later recovered from the area she described. Although a polygraph exams had only recently become an investigative tool, and were still viewed with skepticism, the woman was taken to Austin, Austin where she was administered a test. Results indicated that she had been truthful in her description of the events in Spring Lake Park, but she did later recant her statement. What authorities had was an interesting circumstantial evidence case, but, but, case, but since law prohibited a wife from testifying against a husband if she did not wish to, very little that would attract the genuine interest of a prosecutor. The only way would be with a confession. It was then that the decisions were made to take the suspect to Little Rock, where he would be injected with sodium pentothal, and questioned. They got him there, and the doctor injected him with too much of the stuff, which knocked him out cold. Thereafter, the suspect never spoke of the murders again. Ultimately, he was tried for car theft, and since he had two previous convictions, was sentenced to life in prison as a habitual criminal. So the little bit of information I could find on Yule Lee Swiney, which is the major one of the major suspects at the time. He was born in 1917 in rural Cleveland County, Arkansas, and he was the son of a Baptist minister. In the years immediately pre preceding his arrest, he was earning money by stealing cars, and then he would drive people to destinations throughout the U.S. US. He was convicted of auto theft in 1947, and as a pre-offender, he received life in prison. Then in 1973, following a habeas corpus proceeding, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals ruled that he did not receive adequate representation by his attorney during arraignment in a, on a 1941 auto theft charge, and he was paroled. For those who don't know, federal habeas corpus is generally a procedure on which a federal court may review the legality of an individual's incarceration. It is most often the stage of the criminal appellate process that follows a direct appeal in any available state collateral review. So a year later, however, he was back behind bars, this time convicted of Dallas of counterfeiting quarters and half dollars while he was passing off as collector's items. Sentenced to a two-year prison term, there is a twist of irony attached. 
He was assigned to serve this time in Texarkana Federal Prison. His sentence served. He was again released and returned to Dallas. So the there is a lot of circumstantial evidence that would that can generally point that Ewell, or as I like also call him Lee, to being the Phantom Killer, such as the car Peggy Swinney was arrested in for stealing was the one reported missing on the night of the Griffin Moore murders. When Tackett caught Yule Sweeney on the fire escape, Sweeney said, Please don't shoot me. Tackett replied, I'm not going to shoot you for stealing cars. Then Sweeney replied, Mister, don't play games with me. You want me more, more than for stealing cars. When Yule was in the police car, he asked Chief Deputy Tillman Johnson, Mr. Johnson, what do you think they'll do me for this? Will they give me the chair? Johnson replied, you won't get much, maybe five to ten years. They don't give you the electric chair for stealing cars. And then he repeatedly said, Mr. Johnson, you get more than, you get me, got me for more than stealing cars. When a lawyer told Peggy that her husband was being held for murder, she exclaimed, how did they find out, find it out? Peggy's took officers where Paul Martin's car was found. She she knew where a uh, partial area was, and um, they believe there was also the <coughs> there was also that her family and his brother-in-law believed he was a phantom. The police found a khaki shirt in the suspect's room with a laundry mark of the word Stark, which is read under black light. In the front pocket of the work shirt, slags was found, which met, which matched samples found in Virgil Stark's welding shop, and he previously had owned a 32 caliber Colt automatic, but had sold it in a craps game. While being accused of murder, he remained silent instead of pleading his innocence. Peggy confessed her, confessed her husband's actions, but would later recant it. So the complications of the case were... Um, his fingerprints did not match any of the latent prints in the Booker Martin crime scene. She and her husband, Peggy Swiney, recanted her confession. The Texas Ranger and Bill Presley were not convinced that he was the Phantom. Sweeney denied being the Phantom and never made a confession. Officers, including Bowie County Sheriff Presley, Miller County Sheriff Davis, Texas City Chief of Police Rennells and both state police departments worked day and night for six months trying to validate Peggy Sweeney's story of her and her husband's whereabouts. They deduced that Peggy was not telling the truth and on the night on that on the night of the murder, Booker Booker Martin, the couple were sleeping in their car under a bridge near San Antonio. Unknown as either a sick prank or a true confession, an anonymous woman contacted family members of the two victims. One in 1999 and the other in 2000, apologizing for what her father had done. But the thing is, he never had any kids. There's the most big thing that, um, that people who do try to argue his innocence was that often they point to a night in nine, October 1946 while Sweeney was in jail being questioned about the Texarkana murders that had occurred months earlier, when a young couple was slain while parked on a secluded oceanside road near Fort Lauderdale, Florida, just as with the Lover Lane's victims in Texas, they too had been shot with a thirty-two caliber pistol, and the killer simply vanished, and the case has never been solved. 
there is a possibility that there was more than just five victims. There is a possibility of a sixth victim. So on Tuesday, May 7th, 1946, four days after the Starks murder, at approximately 6 a.m., the body of a man was found on the Kansas City Southern Railway track 60 miles north of Texarkana near Ogden. He was lying face down beside the track with his head pointed north. The man's left arm, severed at the elbow, and leg, severed at the hip, were on the inside of the tracks and had been cut off by a freight train that had passed by at 5.30 a.m. The body was taken to the Phillips Funeral Home in Ashdown for examination. The coroner's jury's verdict stated death at the hands of persons unknown and that he was dead before being placed on the railroad tracks. The coroner believed that the man was dead for a full two hours before being placed on the tracks and that there was not enough blood around the wounds which caused his death. Blood was found on the street near the crime scene, supporting the coroner's theory. Sheriff Sanderson still believed that the man's death was accidental, regardless of the coroner's report, saying, I think the man fell from the train and was killed. The coroner, coroner maintained the verdict that the man had died of knife wounds. The man was identified as Earl Cliff McSpadden from a social security guard, which was issued in Baltimore, Maryland. McMadden's brother, R.C. McSpadden, contacted and attended the Ashdown Funeral Home after hearing about Earl's death over the radio. His brother reported that Earl was employed by a company that travels around a lot. Earl was said by his brother to be a transient oil storage tank builder. His brother was not sure where, where Earl was living at the time. It was found that Earl had registered at the U.S. Employment Service in Shreveport. The body was taken to a Pruitt Funeral Home ambulance, ambulance from the funeral home to Dallas. Because his murder is unsolved, locals have speculated that McFadden was the Phantom's sixth victim. There is a prominent rumor that exists that McFadden was the Phantom was the Phantom and had committed suicide by jumping in front of a train, taking the secrets of the death with him. But there's no, there isn't a evidence concluding, conclusive evidence saying that yes, he is the Phantom. But he could not. He could probably wasn't the Phantom. So that is the true story of the Texarkana Phantom Killings. So thank you all for listening. And have a great day. Two or three weeks later, on Candy's 29th birthday, she received a call from an unexpected person. Hi, this is Alan. I must go to McKinney tomorrow to get some tire shipped on the new truck I brought up here. I wonder if you'd like to have lunch, you know, to talk a little more about the about what we talked about before. Alan and Candy met in an auto repair, auto repair shop in McKinney, the Venerable County, a few miles north of Candy's house. Alan broke the ice right away by surprising her with a birthday card. On the front it read, For the last of the Red Hot Lovers, she opened it with a small plastic bag of red hots inside it was a kind of hokey gag that candy loved and she was instantly touched they got into her car and drove to a quaint little tea house where they talked about everything except themselves for the better part of an hour alan talked about betty candy talked about pat they compared notes on their children and chatted about church matters she then got alan to talk about his work for a while and he in turn seemed interested in when she discussed her creative writing courses then after the meal was cleared away 
and they began to sip their coffee, Alan said, I've never done anything like an affair before. I haven't either, said Candy. I would never be able to forgive myself if Betty ever found out something about like that. I think it would be devastating to her. I feel the same way. I wouldn't want to see anyone hurt by this, Pat or Betty. We would have to be so careful that no one would ever know except us. I've been thinking a lot about what you said about not wanting to emotionally get involved. That would be very important for me. Me too, Alan. I just want to enjoy myself without hurting myself or anyone else. Let's think about it some more and maybe we should think about the hazards some more and whether we want to take that risk. Fine. I think we should. A week later, Alan called Candy again while Pop, Pat was at work. You know, if you don't go to bed with me pretty soon, Alan, then you'll never be able to live up to the expectation I have of you in bed. Candy told him. I know he said. I thought of that. So the month of October 1978 consisted generally of strategy, strategy sessions for what must have been the most meticulous planned love affair. Soon after lunch at the house, Tea House and McKinney, they arranged to meet for lunch again, this time at the parking lot of Allen's office in Richmond, Richardson, from which they drove to a nearby restaurant. Alan was accustomed to making his own hours at work, so a long lunch break was no problem, but they could save time if Candy picked him up. They talked a great deal about emotional involvement. They agreed that there would be none of that. It was too dangerous. If they limited the fear to sex, they were safe. Alan soon became much more comfortable with the idea of an affair, because to his surprise, that he could go to lunch with Candy, talk with her immediately, intimately on the phone, and then go home to Betty, and be always completely normal. So at the end of November 1978, Candy came up with the best stratagem of all. She invited Alan to her house for lunch. She fixed her, fa fixed her famous lasagna for the occasion. She also decided before Alan arrived that if nothing happened soon, she wouldn't spend any more time on this. As soon as Alan walked into the Montgomery house that day, he broke into laughter. For the first time, he saw hanging above the room was a huge piece of butcher paper. On it, in magic marker, were two columns, whys and why nots. The cute sign eased the tension. After eating, they sat in the living room and went over the list an item at a time. They took the why nots first, beginning with the most important one, fear of getting caught. Al was much more concerned about one of the why nots farther down the list, the possibility that they would become emotionally involved. We need to think about what we're getting into, said Alan. Alan, as far as I'm concerned, this is just for fun. I am not serious about it. It is just a companionship thing, and we shouldn't be afraid of it. Whatever happens, we'll do it for a while, and then it'll be over. I'm afraid I might get emotionally involved. We just won't let that happen. The whys were a sense of adventure a need, and a need for companionship. We'll always wonder if we don't do it, she said. I know, said Alan. It's up to you, Alan. I know I can do it. I know I can act in an adult fashion and not take unnecessary risks. I made up my mind, so just tell me if you wanted if you want to do it. How much farther can you go? They had already made the made too big a deal of something that should have been more than natural. It wasn't as though Alan Gore was their fantasy man or anything. A few days later he called again. I've decided I want to go ahead with it, he said. 
It still did not need to happen right away. There were ground rules to be established, logistical problems to be worked out. This affair was to be conducted properly. She even made a list of rules one day so they could discuss them on the phone. If either one of them ever wanted to end the affair for whatever reasons, it would end. No questions asked. If either one became too emotionally involved, the affair would end. If they ever started taking risks and that should be taken, the affair would end. All expenses, food, motel room, gasoline, would be shared equally. They would meet only on weekdays while their spouses were at work. Candy would overcome for would oversee fixing lunches on the days they met so they could have more time. They figured they would need all of Alan's two-hour lunch break. Candy would oversee getting a motel room for the same reason. They would meet on a Tuesday or a Thursday once every two weeks. This was generally because Candy was free only on days when her little boy attended the Play Day Preschool at Allen, A-L-L-E-N, Methodist Church. She took him each Tuesday and Thursday from 9 to 2, but she figured she would need three out of four of those school days for all the other errands and church and school duties in her hectic schedule. So now we come to the part where the affair officially starts. So the date of that the affair was officially start was December 12th, 1978. So essentially a month later, a month, give or two, a few weeks after they come up with all these rules and after all the, all the planning and such, they decide to do it. So first she dropped, first Candy decides to drop her daughter off at the Little Red Lovejoy Schoolhouse on FM Road 1378. Then she went on to Allen and deposited her son at the Play Day Preschool. When she got back to her house, she allowed herself about an hour to fix the this, fix this special lunch she had planned. She packed everything, including a tablecloth, into a picnic basket and then gathered a few undergarments and a nightgown and slipped them into her purse. She had everything ready by 10.45. By 11, she was entering, entering Richardson in her station wagon, searching for motel convenience Alan's office. She found one right on the freeway, just two or three minutes away from Alan called the Continental Inn. It took a few minutes to check in because the girl behind the counter insisted on seeing her driver's license and getting the money in advance. Candy paid the $29 and then filled out the registration card with her real name. The girl gave her the key to one of the upstairs rooms set back from the highway. Candy drove the station wagon around to the back and started unpacking. Then Candy went straight to the phone and called Alan at work. I'm at the Continental Inn on Central Expressway. Expressway, she said. Room 213. Be there in a few minutes, he said. She busied herself getting the room ready. First, she rained her feast on the bed. Then she slipped into her favorite peekaboo negligee. It was a soft pink color and almost sheer. She looked at herself in the mirror. Her mother, too. She didn't look bad. Then she sat in a chair by the window and waited. On the way to the motel... Alan discovered that he wasn't quite as brave as he had thought, either. He worried that perhaps the only reason he was doing this was to please Candy. He had to admit that Candy was sexually appealing, and yet he didn't want to be full of anxiety at this all the time. He didn't want to feel this, the way he was feeling now. That feeling soon disappeared once he opened the door and saw Candy smiling and seductive in her bright and her pink nightgown. He felt a surge of bravado. What the heck? What the heck? I'm here and I'm going to do it. I made lunch, she said. They sat on either side of the bed and made small talk. Alan could tell, much to his surprise, that Candy was even more nervous than he was. 
Both started to eat and finished off a dessert and then busied themselves with putting aside the paper plates and containers as though neither wanted to make the first move. When there was nothing left to do, Candy sat quiet in the chair by the window. There was a moment of strained silence. Well, are you just going to sit there? He asked. Yes, I am. Alan walked around the bed and gently touched her on the shoulder. All her nervousness dissolved. The sex was gentle, gentle and conventional and satisfying. It was very brief. Candy was amazed at first by Alan's naivete as a lover. For his part, Alan was positively transposed, transported. Candy's was responsive and energetic. She moved so much that Alan found it more exciting than any sexual experience he'd ever had. It was good for him because it seemed so good for her. He couldn't keep going very long, but he remembered the feeling four days. Afterward, Candy insisted that they both take showers before leaving. Despite Alan's apparent inexperience, she hadn't had to fake her response much at all. And he did show great promise as a lover. Alan was just as satisfied by the lunchtime rendezvous and was looking forward to the next one. When he went back to work, he felt weak the rest of the afternoon. A week later, just before the Christmas holidays, so this is same year, 1978, they arranged by phone for a peak performance. She made lunch, but changed one other detail. When she got to Richardson, she noticed a small, sleazier motel across from the Connecticut. The Continental. The Como Motel was quite a come down, even by less than luxurious standards of the Continental. She got the impression that the Como didn't even have, didn't have a lot of overnight visitors when she walked into the office and came face to face with a clerk standing behind a plexiglass screen. The manager wanted $23.15 cash in advance plus a $2 deposit for the key. Candy put her money in the trough of the window and she was given a key. She drove around to the asphalt lot in the back. The sleaziness of the place always made it so illicit and so much fun. The room was a little more than a cubicle done in a tattered harvest gold. The curtains were drooping and frayed. The shag carpet was matted like dirty hair. The bathroom had a fake terrazzo, terrazzo flooring. The faucet leaks and the only furnishings other than the bed were a tiny vanity set, a TV set, and two captain's chairs with imitation leather cushions. They made it here at the last days of 1978 and the first three months of 1979. It made glorious love every other week. Dine on taco salad and homemade lasagna and sip cheap red wine out of plastic cups, supplied by management. Afterward, they were reclined on the bedspread and rest their heads on tiny foam river pillows and talk with their lives and their spouses and this child and their mutual love for the church. They would talk until it was time for Alan to go back to work for, for Candy to pick up her son. And then go stand in the tub and turn on the faulty shower attachment and wash off the smell of each other. Finally, they would gather up their belongings, kiss each other lightly on the lips, and go back to their normal lives, closing the door behind them. Later, when Alan looked back on his whirlwind lunch hours with Candy Montgomery, he would think less of the sex than of the relaxation he took there. Those two hours with Candy were often the only time he didn't feel responsibility for the for other people's emotions. The awful burden of making Betty happy, Betty happy. In the confines of a room at the Coma Motel, Alan was a man with no past and no future. Able to accept Candy's confidential affection, she showered him with it in a way that was simple 
and guiltless. Alan had never been with any other woman except Betty in his life. This experience was revitalizing in a way that his life with Betty hadn't been for a long time. The affair made Candy feel alive again, too. She was excited about it and the intrigue and the adventure of it all. And she continued to see Alan every two weeks. Like clockwork. Unfortunately, after the third or fourth guilt time at the Como, she started to have second thoughts. Her doubts weren't spurred by any feelings of guilt. They started, in fact, when she realized that sex with Alan Gore wasn't going to get much better than it already was. The more serious problem was that Candy feared she was beginning to like Alan too much. Sometimes she even thought she loved him. That was too risky. Sex or no sex, she and Alan had both come to look forward to their daily conversations, their shared confidences, their joint dependence. Lately, they had been exchanging funny little greeting cards, and whenever Candy had a drive into Richardson on an errand, she would stop at Alan's office and place gifts under his windshield wiper. Sometimes Alan would go to check out his car, even though he was staying for lunch, just to see if he had any brownies or homemade candy waiting for him. As time went on, they seemed less like lovers and more like best friends. By February 1979, after only two and a half months, she was more than a little anxious that the relationship was turning serious suddenly. Uh, one day at lunch, she tentatively broached the subject with Alan. I think I'm getting in too deep, she said. What do you mean? I don't want to fall in love with you. We're getting serious and I know this is a temporary thing. I don't want to have to deal with myself later if we go too far. How do you know this is getting too serious? I think of you too much. But I thought you were the one who said you got to plow into life and see what happens. That's that's right. I did say that. Well, I guess I'm caught in my own trap. It won't get too serious if we don't get it, let it get too serious. I think the relationship is temporary, too, but we've got to let it run its course. Well, if we're not too worried about it, I guess that makes it half, right? Eventually, Candy allowed herself to be talked into going on. Mostly because she didn't like the thought of not talking to Alan and she was afraid they wouldn't be able to continue their friendship without sex and hoped that she and Pat were planning a long vacation to visit her parents in Georgia. That would give her most of the April to sort things out and discover how she really felt about Alan. That had something special, something that was renewed each time they caught each other's eye during a church service or touched hands over a table at lunch or did something as simple as wasting time on the phone. Alan felt better about himself. He didn't want this affair to get out of hand, of course, but so far, he was, he was surprised at how little had changed the rest of his life. If anything, it had made everything a little easier. Even going to the church was easy, and at first he hadn't expected to do that. He still liked Pat. He didn't think he was doing anything to hurt him. There was no change in his relationship with Betty. Who knew where this affair would end up, or how long it would last? But in the meantime, he was enjoying it, and he couldn't see how anything very bad resolved from it. He hadn't realized until a few weeks off how much affair, how much work an affair could be. When Candy returned from vacation, it was obvious that she had missed him so much as he missed her. They made a day for the Como, but after the luncheon sex, they spent most of their time catching up on each other's lives. One thing they talked about was Betty's pregnancy. Betty was seven months long, and Alan was getting a little apprehensive. Betty would need lots of attention as the day grew closer because of problems with the first baby. And it had crossed Alan's mind that if Betty had started having labor pains when he happened to be at the Como, he would never be able to forgive himself. So in early June 1979, 
He told Candy he thought they should discontinue the affair for a while so that he could always be available for Betty. Candy agreed completely. Annie loved that. Alan loved that about Candy. She understood things like that. Betty would have disagreed and whined, especially when something she wanted was threatened. Sometimes Alan wondered what it would be like to be married to Candy. Then he thought, no, that was out of the question. He knew that he'd never divorce Betty, no matter what. The last visit to the Como had confirmed her earlier fears. The sex was not great. They spent so much time talking that the physical part was all but obligatory. She would never say so, but Candy was also tired of getting up early on the days they sinned together. The whole thing was becoming a hassle. She missed the magic of those first few weeks. At times, Candy would admit to herself that she felt guilty about Pat. He was oblivious to everything. She was certain that he had no suspicions about her and Alan, even though they exchanged glances during worship service. Nevertheless, sometimes it was hard to be around Pat just because he did trust her so much. And it didn't make it any easier when Pat would tell her how much he liked Alan. Candy's powers of deception were put to the ultimate test in mid-June when she threw a sit-down Chinese dinner for the choir. The real purpose of this dinner, and if you're wondering, was a baby shower for, you guessed it, Betty Gore. It was Candy's idea. She thought it would be fun. It didn't occur to her that it might be awkward since she had never felt uncomfortable around Betty, even though she was sleeping with Alan. Someone fixed a special cake. Everyone brought gifts and Candy turned out to be right. Nobody felt uncomfortable. Not even Betty. So this entire time, they've been able to keep this affair very secret, even though, you know, they're meeting with each other at, they're meeting each other at church and everything. And she's throwing a baby shower for Alan's wife. And her husband, Pat, doesn't expect anything. Nor does Alan's wife expect anything. So it's incredibly, incredibly interesting how they managed to keep this affair secret for so long. Okay. So Bethany Gore, which is Alan and Betty's third and final, third, third child, their last child, was born in early July 1979, and Betty seemed to perk up for a while. Bethany brought her parents closer together, especially during the week just after she was born, before they told anyone in the church about her. The feeling, unfortunately, didn't last very long. Now that Alan didn't need to be put on call all the time, there was really no reason for him to put up with the affair any longer. But when he and Candy renewed their love making at the Como in late July, it seemed different. Lackluster. The sex was still good. Alan thought that Candy was more reserved than usual. A couple times she gripped at him about little things that didn't matter, and that wasn't like her at all. Alan started to feel guilty. He thought of Betty back at the house, taking care of Alyssa and Bethany by herself. And he didn't feel good about himself. That week after the baby was born, he had been something special. He wondered if there was a way to get it back. He hoped he wasn't making that impossible by continuing to see Candy. Alan was grateful when Betty finally felt well enough to travel because that meant they could take off a week to show the baby to her anxious Kansas grandparents. He wanted to be away from Candy for a few days, but he wasn't prepared to tell her that. Before Alan left, they agreed to meet at the Como on the following Friday, since Candy knew she could get a sitter that day. The Gores didn't ride home from their Kansas trip until late Thursday night, and ordinarily Alan would have taken off work on Friday as well. 
but he knew that Candy really wanted to see him that day. If he didn't go to work and she ended up at the Como by herself, the fallout would be disastrous. But when Owl told Betty he intended to go to work on Friday, she objected, arguing that he should stay home and help her with errands. Not only was she insistent that he stay home, but she was also more than a little ang suspicious about why he just had to go to work. So, Alan cooked up an excuse to call Candy, something to do with the church, and then he phoned from the kitchen while Betty was in the master bedroom at the back of the house. Without saying the words, he got the message across he couldn't make it. Candy grew angry when she realized what he was telling her, because now she and Pat were leaving for a week-long vacation, and that meant she couldn't see Alan for another two weeks. Alan didn't want to hang out while she was mad, so he stayed on the phone a few minutes, hoping she would calm down. While she hung up, while he hung up, feeling depressed and stupid, sheepish, he walked back to the bedroom. Candy and Pat spent the next week in Wichita, in Wichita Falls, and the following Friday, she met Alan at the Coma Hotel. It was late when he got back to the office. After he left the office that night, Benny wanted to make love. The Gores hadn't had sex since the baby was born, at first because Betty didn't feel up to it. Later, because they were simply out of the habit. Alan had become so to soldier about making love to his wife that they were, they were having sex no more than once a month. But the odd thing about that night was that Betty was so aggressive. It wasn't like her. Alan couldn't remember her taking initiative before in all the years they had been married. But Alan had been with Candy a long time that afternoon, and he was spent... He was surprised by Betty's sexual advance, though he couldn't think of any, an excuse. He just said he didn't feel like it. After Alan rebuffed her, she began to cry. She was embarrassed and humiliated and deeply hurt. It would have been different if she were in the habit of making advances, but to have the very first one rebuffed was too much for her. She jumped to conclusions. Alan didn't love her anymore. He hated her because she was fat after having the baby. So on Monday morning, Alan phoned Candy. I need to talk. When can we meet? When can I meet you and where? They arranged to meet for lunch, and Alan poured the whole story of that Friday night. Betty was very upset, he said. She kept saying, you don't love me anymore. You don't love me anymore. You did reassure her, didn't you? Yes. Candy began to cry. I think it's a little unfair of Betty to say a thing like that after you can't perform it one time. It upset me, too. It was as she made the first move. What are you going to do? I think maybe we should end it. Now, you're being grossly unfair. Well, here's the thing. Back in the rules they made in the early months of, like, 1978, December, they said if they got too emotionally attached, you know, they could end it. No feelings or anything attached. No feelings hurt. And if, you know, they were hurting one another, there are another spouses, they said they would end it. But, unfortunately, Candy is realizing, I don't want that anymore. Um, I'm afraid of hurting Betty. I think maybe the affair is affecting my marriage now, and if I want to get my life back in order, I have to stop running between two women. What about when I suggest we ended it? Remember what you said then? You spoke? No. Well, you have to see the truth at the end, and just because something happens once doesn't mean it will happen again. And things to that effect. How the... How then can you... How that you, now that you can't perform with Betty one time, suddenly want to end it? That's a double standard. I'm not saying that we should definitely end it. I'm just saying we should think about it. I don't want to hurt Betty. 
The issue was left unresolved after the lunch meeting, but they talked several times by phone over the next few weeks. Each time, Candy grew colder and more antagonistic. She couldn't bear the thought of Alan having so little regard for her feelings. Then she would cry and feel better and tell him that she loved him. I do love you, Alan. I know, but we become too close. We've become so close that I'm afraid I don't love Betty anymore, and that was never part of our agreement. We've both been using each other to fill the gaps in our marriage, and that's not right. It's just so unfair. After the Friday night incident, Betty Gore fell into a deep despondency that lasted several weeks. At first, Alan thought he could talk her out of it by spending more time with her, but soon she was complaining of soreness in her neck and shoulders and sudden pains. She was sullen and depressed much of the time, especially after she returned to teaching in early 19, September 1979. She started seeing her family doctor again, and he prescribed pain pills to alleviate some of her complaints. Privately, he suspected that the ailments were all stress-related. So later that month, Alan satisfied an old ambition of his and quit Rockwell International to join a tiny new company called ECS Telecommunications. The company had only one product, a telephone answering machine, but Alan had good friends there, former Rockwell employees, who dared him to take a chance with a small ground floor firm. The only way Alan could have advanced to Rockwell would have been to take jobs that required extensive travel, out of the question, that, would be, that was out of the question given Betty's fear of being alone. <laughs> ECS was offering more money and stock. The job was exciting and something Alan really wanted to do if Betty would go along. It took a while, but he convinced her that the move wasn't too risky, that he wouldn't be spending more time at work than he was now. Betty reluctantly agreed if she hadn't, Alan wouldn't have done it, because he wouldn't have been able to stand this complaining. But she remained fearful and nervous, as she was about any new adventure. <clears throat> the next time Alan talked to Candy, he said that because of the new job and the additional work, he wouldn't be able to see her as much. Candy was upset. She was beginning to fear the inevitable end of the affair. But she asked Alan if they could meet at least once more. At the Como, they had quick, unsatisfying sex, then spent an hour and a half discussing how they could live without each other. The next time they met, they didn't bother to go to the motel. <clears throat> Instead, they took a picnic lunch to a park in North Dallas and spread their blanket under a tree. The weather was so nice that it gave a bittersweet aurora, aura to the conversation. I love you so much, Alan. I don't even think we can make it if we break up. Betty wants to go to marriage counseling called Marriage Encounter. I asked her once before, but she always said she didn't think we needed it. I think maybe it will do us both some good. So, marriage so this marriage encounter marriage counseling um, thing is pretty much what is Alan has actually heard about this before from his friends about how this helps his marriage because back before when him and his wife were having problems he thought about doing this but his his wife Betty was not really interested in doing it at all so they a few months later years later she decided she wants to do it so that's how they came up that's how marriage encounter came into the came into the Ex conclusion I think marriage encounter is going to be the end for us Candy said oh no not necessarily let's see what happens first two weeks later Betty returned to a doctor's office extremely tense and complaining of aches and pains in her shoulders 
Her blood pressure was dangerously high. The doctor prescribed more painkillers and muscle relaxants and asked her to come back in a few days. Batty felt a little better after talking to the doctor. What she didn't tell him was that all of her anxieties were countered on the coming weekend. She and Alan were about to be encountered. <clears throat> Dunphy's Royal Motor Coach Inn, a fake medieval castle full of tunnels, turrets, and gables, and the regal purples and scarlets of an adult Disneyland, was a site each month of the weekend gathering called Methodist Marriage Encounter. It was less a counseling session than a total immersion experience, though it had the tacted approval of the church. It was run by laymen. It began with a Friday night dinner, at which the rules were explained. Spouses were to be always at each other's side. There was to be no distractions at all, such as TVs and newspapers. Nothing was to get in the way of the couples communicating about their feelings. Alan and Betty were led into a large meeting hall with three dozen or so other couples and introduced their encounters leaders, all married couples, who had previously gone through the program. The couples on stage would talk openly about their marriages, but no one else was to speak except in the privacy of their own rooms. The procedure was that the leaders would propose a question. The verse was, why did I come here this weekend and what do I hope to gain? Then the couples would retire to their rooms or to write answers in their individual marriage encounter spiral notebooks. Once they had written their answers, they exchanged notebooks with a kiss, read each to each other, read each other's answers, and then discussed how those answers made them feel. When their time was up, they would be summoned back to the main room for more testimonials, followed by additional questions. The group leaders gave them printed sheets explaining how to write a love letter, how to dialogue, and what is a feeling, and assured them that everything in written in the notebooks would be strictly private. Betty and Allens were sent to the rooms. They began to write. Allen didn't know originally what to write down, but he said, I wanted to come here because I see from my friends examples that it could strengthen or build our marriage. I think too that I haven't felt really close to you for some time and I don't like that. I hope I can learn to talk to you. I hope you can learn to talk to me. I want to be able to understand why you do the things you do and I want to be able to tell you what I want. So Betty wrote, I came for several reasons. First, for a weekend of relaxation, which will probably help my nerves. Second, and most important, to get off by with, to get off, off by together. I'm not a person to be left alone. I want my husband with me and that's what we'll have this weekend. Just us. I hope to gain a little more freedom and expression between us. I don't often hold back my feelings unless I'm mad. Then not for long, but I feel that sometimes you don't let me know things when things are bothering you. We need to work on this. As he read over the answers to the guests that they had written, Alan was pleased to see that Betty really was responding to this program. After a few minutes, one of the group leaders came by and knocked on their door. It was time for the next session, <clears throat> which was called Focus on Feelings. This session was more personal. The couples were, couples were given three questions. What do I like best about you and how do I feel about that? Or hide fat, H-D-I-F-A-T. What do I like best about myself and hide fat? And what do you like about us and hide fat? 
So the first question, Betty wrote, the thing I like best about you is your calmness and your ability to look at everything squarely. You don't know, or maybe you do, how this affects me. You're my tranquilizer. Her final answer, what she liked about them as a couple, was that very special feeling get when we're together. Warm and happy. It's horrible when we're not. It's like I'm only half of me. Maybe that means I'm not secure enough. I don't think so. I th your presence is just important to me. Alan's answers are more prosaic. He liked Betty's dedication to raising the children and her jobs. He liked himself for his calmness and rationality. He liked them for their promising future. He felt secure, but not totally fulfilled yet. The encounter session was in full swing Saturday, and as the day wore on, through meals and pep talks and introductions on how to describe in loving detail, or dild, or share our uniqueness, or open up the gift of dialogue, and as the questions got progressively more personal and incisive, the group took on all the appearances of a lovin'. It occurred to show off affection publicly, couples holding hands during the meeting room sessions, and exchanging light kisses at meals. Everyone was issued a name tag. Alan's read Alan and Betty Gore. Betty's read Betty and Alan Gore. The couples were encouraged not to carry on any conversations with each other without including their spouse entirely. Giving the total immersion, the lack of outside influences, and the complete concentration on one person for an entire weekend, it was surprising that remarkable things were happening. Alan was beginning to realize why couples who merged from marriage encounter were likely to become evangelists. During their time together, Alan and Betty were, cer were certainly starting to feel closer. When the couples were asked to write a love letter on feelings of disillusionment, the dislike gave way for Alan. I have feelings of boredom, emptiness, and sort of loneliness. I don't really know why, but I do. I don't feel like I really know why, what makes you happy. And that's frustrating. Sometimes I feel like what is most important to you is your classroom, not me. That may be true, but sometimes I just feel jealous of that classroom. Betty's love letters, in quotations, on Saturday began with a confession of her shortcomings. I were the mass of the do-it-all person and led up to her most deep-seated fears. So many times she began in one letter. I feel that sex is an area that we are long way apart. I guess part of it is the way I brought up was brought up. Sex is dirty and wrong. And for a long time the fear of becoming pregnant when I didn't want to be. I want to be desirable you and I want to make you happy. And another response in response to another question, she touched Neva on an even more specific anxiety. It's hard for me to talk about sex, too. More of the upbringing stuff. Sometimes it's so hard to feel calm and quiet, as you need to be enjoying sex. I guess the relaxation part is the hardest for me. That's why in Switz, a little or a lot of wine helps. It relaxed me so I could really be free to enjoy it all. I've tried several times to have some of what we've gotten, but tastes bad. Or leases of, or if it's a school night. There's always a drawback. Does this mean I'm not comfortable with sex if I need to make need wine to make it a little more presence? I don't know. Sunday is the final day and most special day of the marriage encounter. It begins with religious services followed by more group sessions and then each couple is given a mimeograph sheet. On it is the big question of the weekend. What are my reasons for wanting to go on living? The couples retire to their rooms for 90 minutes of writing in their notebooks and 90 minutes of dialogue. A total of 30 hours for what is called the matrimonial evaluation. It is intended to bring out the emotions that have been building throughout the weekend. 
After the go on living session, couples frequently emerge from their homes with this hair stained faces and tousled hair. In the case of the Gores, it was an engrossing and satisfying experience. They declared the love over and over and let her and the dad. <clears throat> Alan wrote, before this weekend, I was beginning to feel like I don't know if I really wanted to live with you. But just in a short time we've had together this weekend, I have realized that what I was feeling was not, I don't like you, but more, I like, I don't feel excited about you because I'm not used to the way things are. Or no, I'm sorry. I'm too used to the same way things are. I want to share more of your feelings and I want to be able to share mine with you. Betty was equally warm, but at the end of her letter, she turned psalm. Here I sit crying because I'm so happy and so proud to be your wife. I've known that all along, but when you really stop to think about it, we are so lucky to have each other. Let's don't let anything come between us. We've been through so much. All of it we can look back at as good. Except the times you were gone for a long time. I remember those times with dread. The aloneness, the coolness of a house that really wasn't a home without you there. The fear of your state for your safety because you were you were where I was not and I couldn't make sure you were okay. I never really felt fear for my safety at home alone. But the feeling of being alone is the worst possible one to have. It's like you're in a dark tunnel and you've got a long way to go to the light. The light isn't there till you're home again safe and sound. That night they emerged from room three two one for the final time, and the group gathered to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The couple sipped the communion wine in the marriage encounter fashion with arms linked. Afterward, in the emotional climax, they were all remarried in a ceremony which they led each other through the traditional vows. Many of their encountered friends surprised them with their presence at the ceremony, and others sent their love through reading cards congratulating them on their new commitment. When the Gores got in the car to go home, the radio happened to be broadcasting the wrap-up show of the Dallas Cowboys games. Alan switched it off. It was just noise to him. Part of a past life. When they got home that night, they filled a calls until bedtime. All from Joyful Alicia's soon be part of their flame group, which would meet regularly to keep the spirit of the fellowship alive. The Gores ran one errand before they returned to Wiley, though. They stopped by the Montgomery house in Fairview to pick up Bethany, whom Candy had kept for the weekend. Alan went to the door while Betty waited in the car. How was it? asked Candy. It was really good for us. What do you mean? What does that mean? I don't know. The next morning, Allie was still riding the emotional high as he dressed for work. On the drive into Richardson, he tried to shut out all the sensations except the thoughts of Betty. His life had changed. He wanted to concentrate all his thoughts and feelings on his marriage. This was once again the most important thing in his life. Yet, when he got to work, he knew that sooner or later he would need to call Candy. They met a week later. She brought a pick to clinch, and they went back to the park in North Dallas. Alan did most of the talking. He told Candy all about Marriage Encounter and what it had done for them. We learned a lot about each other, he said. I think maybe I was wrong with Betty in some ways. I think a lot of things she doesn't like about me were based on fears of loneliness instead of bitchiness. We told each other things that we hadn't even thought about. That's good, said Candy. I'm glad. I don't necessarily feel different about you, said Alan, but I do feel strong that I want to give my resources to my family. The relationship with you is taking away some of the emotional involvement and energy that I could direct towards Betty and the kids. I'm not sure how long this feeling will last or what will happen, but I know 
I don't want to interfere with it. What does that mean for me? I'm not sure if I can deal with not seeing you, said Candy. After making the strongest argument he could for breaking up, Alan still couldn't bring himself to say the words. They left the issue hanging but agreed to meet again the next day. When they did, Candy came directly to the point. Alan, you seem to be living up to me. So decided, I won't call, I won't try to see you, I won't bother you anymore. They both cried a little because they knew it was over. Alan was secretly relieved that she had made the decision, not him, that he didn't want to bear the guilt. He hadn't planned for it to happen the way, that's just how it worked. Candy had mixed emotions as well. She was telling the truth when she said she didn't know she would deal with the loss of Alan. She had grown comfortable with the idea of losing two peop of loving two people. She loved Alan's casual phone calls and small kindness, and she would miss him. The good news was that she didn't have to make any more damn picnic lunches. Which I kind of funny, Lenny. Funny there. A short while later, Candy and Pat attended a marriage counter cash session. There, though they enjoyed it, they did not have the same kind of life-changing experience that Petty and Alan had had. But both couples headed to the summer of 1980 with a sense of peace happiness about their lives. That would soon change. So that ends part one of this particularly interesting episode of To Have an Affair or Not To Have an Affair. So tune in next week when I come up to the conclusion of what ha what life changing event happens because it's very very sad and there are multiple victims through all this unfortunately <laughs> um one of the major actually got a lot of information from this book i found on amazon called evidence of love a true story of passion and death in the suburbs it's written by john bloom and jim atkinson so if you want more information on it, you can find it there. But I will be uploading episode part two of this episode next week. See you later.